0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like wallets. Buzzers and squints. Squints. I'd love to do the history of squinting,
1: Sam. I think that would be excellent. (laughs) A sort of squinting view of history. However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of rubble is in fact all about reconstruction at the end of World War II? Or that the history of fire is in fact all about communication
0: in Tudor England. The man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing. Nevertheless, he will help pilot us through these micro-histories. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam,
1: and the man not sitting opposite me because we are in lockdown 3.0 and we are social distancing as we are expected to, but nonetheless, helping me ably co-pilot this episode, it's the famous historical adventurer
0: himself, the man off the telly, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. This is one more of our micro histories in which we embrace the task of demonstrating how an unexpected subject not only has a history, but is massively important and very, very interesting. And we do it in just 15 minutes without trying to talk faster. We start with a shared example, then have just five minutes each to make a case for an interesting history on that very unexpected subject. Contributions are rigorously timed.
1: They certainly are, and you, our dear listeners, you will get to vote on social media on what you think was the most interesting fact that you heard in the episode.
0: Today's topic is the fascinatingly unexpected history of fun. We know how to have fun, James, don't we? Where should we start? (laughs) Well, Sam, we were inspired
1: to do this by our book on the Vikings, which has a little chapter on fun. So that's where we're going to start, and in particular, with the archaeology of fun. Get that. Now some of the best evidence that we have for Viking fun comes from archaeology. It's something you don't necessarily think of the Vikings as. You don't necessarily think of them as fun lovers but they were. In particular you can look at dice, gaming pieces and gaming boards. These are all important archaeological finds and the boards have survived either as independent objects, often double-sided boards with different games on each side or carved on the tops of wooden chests so that wherever you went with your wooden chest you could simply use the top as a as a as a board to play on and a number of early medieval shipwrecks have demonstrated that these games were played at sea as well as on land and the Vikings were fun lovers. They played numerous games, including tables, which might be recognised today as a form of backgammon. They also played chess, and they also played a game called Knenfatfel, if I pronounce that correctly. A game <laughs> it's very, st- very
0: likely, James. <laughs> very, Very unlikely that I did.
1: Um, but it's a game of strategy that predates chess. And there's also another game called Nine Man's Morris, which is another game of strategy with ancient roots, and these kinds of games linked fun and function. So while on the one hand, these were pastimes to while away the hours when you're out marauding, um, on the other hand, they had a very serious purpose, which was to teach and develop strategy. And here again, the archaeological evidence is particularly telling. Among the goods buried with a warrior in a grave uncovered at the site of Berka in Sweden, which is a superb gravesite, was a very full collection of weaponry as well as gaming pieces. For Vikings, fun and fighting, games and strategy went hand in hand.
0: I love this idea about gaming pieces, and I looked into it a bit, because they, in particular, offer historians a wealth of information on Viking art, culture, society, manufacturing techniques, international trade, access to natural resources. They tell you so, so much. Uh, Gaming pieces were made from a wide variety of material. Glass, amber, bone, bronze, wood, antler, soapstone, teeth, horn, whalebone, walrus, tusk, and jet, and working each type of those materials required a mastery of, of a different technique. Every one was demanding in its own way, which testifies to the wide ranging skills of Viking craftsmen. The pieces themselves range from small, smooth, undecorated pieces to the most extraordinary pieces of them, all the Lewis Chessmen. And if you haven't seen the Lewis Chessmen, do please have a look online. They're wonderful. Discovered in 1831, buried in a small stone chamber in a sand dune in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, they still rank as one of the most important examples of early medieval art ever discovered. They represent an extraordinary meeting of cultures. The game of chess, of course, originated in India around 500 BC and came to uh, to the West via the Islamic world to Europe, where it was adopted and then adapted to reflect contemporary societies. And these particular pieces represent a unique Viking take on the game. 78 of the chessmen were found in the Lewis Horde and they're believed to represent at least four different sets which, along with their pristine condition, suggests they may have been the stock of a trader. They're believed to have been made in Norway around 1150 to 1200. And there's a trader who is travelling from Norway, perhaps to Ireland uh, via Scotland. The Vikings then, of course, in Ireland. Um, All Norwegian territory. But the reason that the chessmen were buried remains unknown. There you are, James. Bit of Viking chess for you.
1: Oh, I love that. Superb, Sam. Now, I'm going to tell you about the Viking ball game because the Vikings spent a great deal of time playing not just these strategy games, but also more physical games that mimicked combat, so the kinds of fighting that they would get into. These included wrestling matches, pillow fighting, would you believe, and even drowning matches in which the fight took place in waist-deep water. And the aim was to hold your opponent down underwater until they surrendered. Now, that's an, an intensely physical game. And again, it's all about strategies of combat. I can't get over that idea of the drowning matches. The Vikings also played a ball game that was a clear mix of fun and fighting, and it was called, inspirationally, The Ball Game. Uh, in, in, in Viking, uh, it's, it's uh, Nat Laker. Yeah, I hope that's pronounced correctly. And we know quite a lot about it because it was described in the sagas. Um, though, to be honest, its intricacies remain tantalisingly beyond our grasp. But we know a bewildering a lot. About it. We know, for example, that the Natlaikr was violent, that the ball travelled hard and fast and could cause injury. And we know about this from the Grettir saga, for example. It's quoted that Grettir, running with the ball towards Aden, put the ball right forward in his forehead so that it broke the skin. And the game could be played on ice, but also that ice was not necessary for the game to be played upon. We also know that the game involved boundaries in terms of the ball being in or out of bounds and that it was enjoyed by spectators, that it was played with sticks that were used to both hit and catch the ball, though it's unclear how many balls were in play at once, or indeed, if everyone had a stick. It sounds a
0: little uh, like Harry Potter's Quidditch, doesn't it, Sam? So there we are, (laughs) the the ball game. Very good. It's interesting you're talking about the example there of the ball hitting a man on the head. And the point here is that, um, there are lots of gaps in our understanding of Viking fun. We particularly don't know very much about what women did. We know they were present at some male sports, like the ball game, but only as spectators rather than as participants. And they were entirely absent from other um, other events like horse fights, which were deemed too dangerous. An important point here that women are often marginalised in historical records. They tend to privilege male experience. But you can sketch women's leisure time pursuits through a close reading of the sources, paying attention to the gaps and the silences. Also, where time allowed from the daily grind of survival, we know that women were involved in embroidery, storytelling, composing poetry. Uh, We know that these could be a very strategic way of exerting their own power within the household. Uh, Women also swam, not just for exercise, but also for sport, and that they also played board games. So we do have a really good idea, James, of what the Vikings did for fun. But this, of course, raises the important question of how else we might think about the history of fun. James, are you ready? Oh, I am. That sounds, have... like a ch- that sounds like a challenge, Sam. It is a challenge. I'm going to give you five minutes to think of something else and to talk about it to do with the history of fun. Ready? make make fun history. I will. I actually had a lot of fun uh, researching
1: this and I reached to the research tomes on my shelf and grabbed the Opie collection again, the law and language of school children, And they have a chapter in there, chapter two, entitled Just for Fun, which is basically all about the oral rhymes that children used. And so many of them are Just sort of nonsense rhymes, tongue twisters, macabre rhymes, popular songs, parodies, joke rhymes, improper verses, uh, nonsensical couplets. And I will detain you no longer, uh, but give you some. Um, Oh, my finger. Oh, my thumb. Oh, my belly. Oh, my bum, <laughs> which is one of the sort of silliest, shortest ones to do. And so it's what we're getting at here is it's kind of the sort of it's childhood play and what children do for fun. that isn't about learning and is simply about laughing. There's another rhyme here called uh, which goes Mrs. White had a fright in the middle of the night. She saw a ghost eating toast halfway up the lamp post." Uh, another one here uh, from, from another school child. Never let your braces dangle. Never let your braces dangle. Poor old sport, he got caught and went right through the mangle. Went through the mangle, he did by gum. Came out like linoleum. Now he sings in Kingdom Come. Never let your braces dangle, chum. And there are also all sorts of satirical rhymes that children came up with that are equally, equally fun. Now, get this one here. One, two, three. Mother caught a flea, put it in the teapot and made a cup of tea. The flea jumped out. Mother gave a shout. In came father with his shirt hanging out. OK, and here's another one that's quite good. Um Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quick, quick, the cat's been sick. Where, where? Under the chair. Hasten, hasten, fetch the bla- Fetch the basin. No, no, fetch the poe. Kate, Kate, you're far too late. The carpet's in a dreadful state. There's an 11-year-old boy in London. We're talking here about the, the, the 1940s, 1950s. Um, but there were also other... Other rhymes, sort of key nursery rhymes that sort of that use this sort of fun, playful nursery rhyme uh, sound pattern. Queenie, Queenie, Caroline dipped her hair in turpentine, turpentine to make it shine. Queenie, Queenie, Caroline. And this is this is this is one I remember from my own um, from my own childhood. Julius Caesar, the Roman geezer, squashed his (laughs) wife with a lemon squeezer uh Mr Ross thinks he's boss because he's the owner of HP sauce <laughs> that's a 12 year old girl in Aberdeen that one um and so they also had some nonsense rhymes uh and this was really inspired by edward lear uh and by lewis carroll uh and again we've got some more uh examples here from the 19 19- 40s and 1950s uh, across Great Britain. And here's one of my favourites. The sausage is a cunning bird with feathers long and wavy. It swims about the frying pan and makes its nest in gravy. Um, another one from a girl, uh, age 10, in London. Once upon a time when birds ate lime and monkeys chewed tobacco, the pigs took snuff to make them tough. And that's the end of the matter. That's not so good, that one. Um, Another one, one of my favourites. As I was going to school one day to learn my ABC, I fell into a washing tub and sailed the ocean sea. There came by a Chinaman who said I was a spy, and if I did not talk to him, he'd poke me in the eye. He tied...
0: What on earth is that? <laughs> that is, James, some really cool... I found it like an archive of old fairground music. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. So that's from the 70s. That's like, what well, you know, when um one of those kind of spinny things, maybe yes. with some dodgem cars. Well, it's it. Well, well, it Wurlitzes. Anyway, yes. you have been stopped in your five-minute journey for fun, but I shall allow you to finish up. Okay, I shall finish
1: up this rhyme. He tied me to a cabbage stalk and cut my head with a knife and fork. I grew so fat that I could not walk. I joined the Chinese army. So there we are. Uh, The history of fun is all about silly rhymes from children in Great Britain in the 1940s and 1950s. Now,
0: where are you going to go with yours, Sam? James, I love that, particularly that bit about joining the Chinese army at the end. I wonder what the um, the, 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 the cultural history of that is. What's going on there? Who knows? Who knows, indeed.
1: OK, Sam. You can't digress. You can't put it off any longer. Um, You have five minutes to say something about fun
0: from three, two, one. Make history. (laughs) Um, I was watching telly the other day and there was an advert that said, when the fun stops, stop. It was a controversial slogan from the gambling industry. If any of you are watching sport on telly, you will definitely come across this. It made me think about gambling and also, well, gambling is a source of fun, but also the interesting idea that an activity could be fun for a bit and then that same activity could not be fun. And I actually think that it can apply to all sorts of things. But I, I chose, I was inspired to take a look at gambling. There are all sorts of ways you can think about the history of gambling. The location of it's interesting. Um, the idea of, of the location being fun. James, quick question for you. Do you have fun at a fun fair? Uh, sometimes. It's, mm. it's
1: complicated. I'm not a big fan of, of big sort of uppy-downy rides. It Do you have fun at the sick. cinema? Uh, it depends what sort of film I go to see. I don't necessarily go to the cinema to, be, to have fun. Okay. Do you have fun in a library?
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> there we go. What a so nerd my, geek. Yeah, my point here is that um, actually it's it's quite complicated thinking about where you have fun the locations of it. In the 18th century, there's a very strong link between fun, between passing of time and gambling. And it happens mainly in gentlemen's clubs. There are a variety of different clubs, different social mixes, primarily different political persuasions. Whites is the oldest gentleman's club in London, founded in 1693. And by the 18th century, gambling becomes a really significant pastime. The making of, of wages reaches its height, and the, the members basically become addicted to gambling. They stake huge amounts of money on completely ridiculous things, whatever might occur to them. What's brilliant about this is that the wages were all, wagers, sorry, were all written down, and they survive in something called White's, um, White's Book of Wages, White's gambling history. It's such a wonderful historical source uh, that someone realised very early on that it was it was going to be worth worth everyone reading, and so it was actually published. And I found a copy from 1892. And some wonderful, wonderful examples here. Um, So they're all written down. Lord Leicester bets Lord Montfort 100 guineas that six or more peers of the British Parliament, including Catholics, Miners, Bishops and 16 Scotch Lords, shall die between the 2nd of September 1744 and the 1st of December 1745. Here's another one. Uh, This is 1st of March, 1745. Mr. Jeffreys bets 100 guineas to 50 that Mr. Heath is married before Mr. Hunter. The one guinea received Mr. Jeffreys is to pay Mr. Heath. So uh, this huge book is full of these sorts of wages. What's really interesting about them is that they could be followed through. So, for example, October 1746, Mr James Jeffreys bets Mr Fanshawe 50 guineas that Lord Byron is married to Miss Shaw on or before Lady Day next. Uh, And Mr James Jefferies, we know, probably won his bet because Lord Byron did in fact marry. He married Miss Elizabeth Shaw, the daughter and heiress of Besthorpe in Norfolk on May the 28th, 1747. Here's another one. 18th of November, 1817, Mr Bouverie bets Lord Yarmouth 150 that his Royal Highness the Duke of Clarence has not a legitimate child within two years of this day. And Mister Bouverie must have won because the Duke of Clarence became uh, King William the Fourth had no legitimate children. Now here's a really interesting character. This is Lord Montfort, and if I just look at one of the pages here, he bets there are there are one, two, three, four. There are five entries, and four of them are Lord Montfort's. July nineteenth, Lord Montfort bets Stan, William Stanhope that the Duchess Dowager of Marlborough is alive. The first of February on seventeen forty five. He then bets Lord Leicester 100 guineas that 12 members of the House of Commons don't die. He then bets Lord Leicester another 100 guine- uh, guineas on something similar about the members of the House of Lords and those who will be staying alive. Um, if you look through it, Lord, uh, Lord Montfort is in so, so many of them. This matters because on the 4th of November 1754, the following wager. Lord Montfort wages Sir John Bland 100 guineas that Mr Le- Nash outlives Mr Kibber. Now, this refers to two very old men, but below this is written in a different hand. Both Lord Montfort and Sir John Bland put an end to their own lives before the bet was decided. This, of course, has its own uh, fascinating history. Lord Montfort ended up uh, losing all... <laughs> what was that? <laughs> the end of my five minutes, James. I <laughs> know
1: That's The Laughing Policeman uh, by Charles Jolly. Oh,
0: very good. Okay, I'm going to stop and finish it. My point about this is that... um... (laughs) I like it. Excellent. What is your point Um, about this, Sam? Lord Montfort... Lord Montfort takes his own life. He shoots himself. Um, and so he was unable to uh, to 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 fulfil that bet of November the 4th, 1754. So there you are, a little history. Uh, fun in this example is all about uh, people starting off having fun and definitely not having any fun, losing everything, um, some even taking their own lives, and it all happening within the confines of gentlemen's clubs in London in the 18th century. Oh, that sounds splendid, Sam. Uh, listen to this.
1: Mm. I went to the pictures next Tuesday and took a front seat at the back. I said to the lady behind me, I cannot see over your hat. She gave me some well-broken biscuits. I ate them and gave them her back. I fell from the pit to the gallery and broke my front bone at the back. Another nonsense <laughs> rhyme, this
0: time from Enfield. That was brilliant. What, what sort of period was that? Is that was, again the 50s and 60s? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that very much. Guys, I hope you enjoyed our little history of fun. Um, oh, we could carry on doing that for hours. Uh, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are
1: also on Instagram and Facebook. So please follow us there as well. And we have a website, unexpected.com, where you can find out everything that we've been up to over the last... Goodness knows how long. Several years.
0: Yeah, last several years. Uh, We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Any money you can offer there will go towards the uh, production fees and allow us to produce more material. That would be great. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye bye. Take care, guys. Bye.